you'll stand, remain standing as we open God's Word to the book of Jonah. If you're using a Bible from in front of you on the pew, you can find it on page 921, I believe. Uh, it's not an easy one to find. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 3. Bruce continues to lead us through a book as we try to find out what's eating Jonah. Today we'll be reading Jonah chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. And the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Let's pray. God, as we near our time of, uh, of celebrating what you're doing around the world, Lord, today may we be reminded of the repentance that you call them and us to. Lord, may we just, um, Lord, just look at the heart that you have for the nations and how gracious you are, how gracious you've been to us. God, let us uh, capture that passion for the loss that you have. Lord, may we just seek with urgency to see them redeemed and to respond as the Ninevites did. In Christ's name, amen. It's just good to praise the Lord, amen. God inhabits the praise of his people, and that was just good. And now we worship him through the preaching of his word. Well, keep your Bibles open to Jonah 3, and I want to ask you a question. Where do you think the greatest revival in history of the world took place? Was it in Europe under Calvin or Luther or Zwingli? Was it in England due to Whitfield, Wesley, or Spurgeon? Was it in Scotland due to the great John Knox? Or was it here in America under the influence of Jonathan Edwards or D.L. Moody or Billy Graham? You give up? Well, it's been said that it occurred 150 miles northwest of Baghdad, Iraq, near the city of Mosul. Near Mosul, there is a massive mound of earth, and beneath that mound, we are told that the ancient 
tomb of the messenger used in the greatest revival of all lies the prophet Jonah. Now, one person has gone so far as to say that what happens here in Jonah 3 that Kirk just read for us is the most complete and widespread revival that had ever taken place in any city at any time. And I think that could be debated, but there's no mistaking the amazing grace of God that took place in Nineveh as a result of one man, one man who stopped running from the Great Commission and started running to the Great Commission. One man who took what Carrie many years later would say, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. But this just doesn't happen by chance. There's conditions. And that's what Jonah chapter 3 is really all about. We must meet God's conditions for fulfilling the Great Commission. See, we don't call the shots on how the Great Commission is going to be fulfilled. Salvation belongs to whom? To the Lord. It belongs to the Lord. What is eating Jonah in chapter 2 was not the great fish, but a great God of great compassion. Jonah took a ride in chapter 2 to hell and back again in the belly of a great fish because he had a heart that ran from fulfilling God's great commission. But once he repented in the belly of that fish of his disobedience, Jonah was prepared to make a choice again to meet God's great conditions for fulfilling the great, condition, the great Commission. So when you look at Jonah 3 there in your Bibles, you see it's full of choices. In verses 1 through 4, Jonah has choices to make. <coughs> Excuse me. Will he repent of his running and turn back to God with a faith that obeys? In verses 5 through 9, we see Nineveh has choices to make. Will they repent of their sinning and turn back to God in his holiness. God has choices to make. In this last verse, verse 10, will God relent of his judgment on Nineveh? Will he turn back from overthrowing that city in his burning wrath? And this morning, we too have choices to make. Will we repent of our running? And will we turn back to meet God's four great conditions for fulfilling the Great Commission. When you think of this chapter, it's a great flow, and it's a great story. Chapter 1, Jonah is running into a great storm. In chapter 2, Jonah is remembering in the great fish. And here in chapter 3, Jonah is repenting and going to that great city, which will result in the Ninevites repenting as well. Why is this chapter all about choosing to repent? Because the missionary problem is always, always a heart problem. It is always a heart problem. The heart of the problem is always the heart. Does my heart reject God's conditions for fulfilling the Great Commission? So this morning I want you to see that what's eating Jonah in chapter 3 is this a heart that refuses to meet God's great conditions. We're going to see that he obeyed outwardly, 
But inwardly, we will see next week, he has not really received and repented of God's great conditions. So this entire chapter comes down to one simple message. And here it is in one word, repent. Repent. Choose to repent. Or to put it more bluntly, turn or burn. Now, when you hear that, what do you think? What do you think of? Do you think of this crazy guy? Let's see, do we have this? Bring up the next slide. Well, okay, don't, don't do that. All right, all right. I had a great picture of a crazy guy saying the end is near. Okay, I, I guess I don't have a great picture. The end near with a sandwich board. You've seen them. Turn or burn, the end is near, okay? And then there's a cartoon of a guy with a sandwich board, and he's saying the end is near, and the guy walks up and says, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, here's the reality. Jesus preached repentance. And though he wasn't a weird, crazy guy you would avoid, his family called him crazy, and the world called, it, called him crazy. And the message that the end is near and repent is a message that can be a good thing or a bad thing. And what determines the difference? Whether you repent, whether you choose to repent. So here's the thing. God has conditions for salvation. And we have choices that we need to make. Let's look at God's four great conditions and realize this this morning. I don't, in this room and online, you are having this morning a second chance. A second chance to hear again these four great conditions. A second chance to repent of our selfish ways and to meet God's conditions for reaching the unreached. So let's look at this first condition. And it's simply this, a messenger who repents of willful ways. A messenger who repents of willful ways. Fulfilling the Great Commission won't happen without goers. It's really that simple. Messengers and missionaries who are willing to be sent to hard places that have hard hearts and it's risky to go. You see, it's popular in missions these days to ask people to pray for dreams. Dreams so people in hard places will come to Christ. And I have to admit, we have to admit that we see in Scripture, God does use dreams to get the attention of the unsaved and to prepare their hearts at times. We see this in Acts 10 with the Gentile Cornelius. And we also see... Here in Jonah 1 and 2, God moved heaven and earth, a great wind, a great storm, a great fish, all to get the attention of his messenger. But you will never find in the Bible where God uses dreams to communicate the gospel. He always uses messengers. He uses imperfect people like Jonah. All the great miracles in this book of heaven and earth, of the great fish, it was all to get the messenger to repent and go where he was told to go. Romans 10.13 remains true and will ever remain true. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? 
How will they believe in him who they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. You've got to be sent and it has to be brought. Now, what does all this have to do What does God do for Jonah? Well, in his great mercy, he gives Jonah a second chance to obey and to go and to bring good news to the Ninevites. Well, let me give you two facts about repenting of our willful ways. And here's the first thing, and it's good news. Our God is a God of second chances, amen? He is a God of second chances. If you compare the first three verses of chapter 3 with the first verses of chapter 1, you see that they are almost identical. They are two calls. God is giving Jonah a second chance. And he wants to give you and I a second chance this morning. And the only difference in verses 1 through 3 from the beginning of the chapter is that God emphasizes a little bit more in this second time that Jonah is to say only what God tells him to say And Jonah is to do only what God tells him to do. You see, the Lord God loves his covenant people too much to leave them alone in their disobedience. He pursues his rebel people with his word, with his spirit, and with distressing circumstances to bring us to our knees. Some Christians think, that if they run far enough and long enough, God will leave them alone and let them do whatever that is they want to do. It's kind of like this. If I leave God alone, he'll leave me alone. But God doesn't do this with his own children, and we don't do it as parents with our own children when uh, when they are disobeying. Listen, do you have a prodigal this morning? Then you take heart. Take heart and know that God pursued Jonah until he was willing to obey him and live according to the word of the Lord. You see, here's the irony of chapter 3. God was willing to do for Jonah what Jonah was unwilling to do for the Ninevites, and that is give them a second chance. Now, the question for us this morning is, have you been running? Have you been running from the great commission that God has called you to fulfill? Have you forgotten the great concern that God has outside of your comfort zone, outside of your needs, outside of your problems? Well, the good news this morning is it's not too late to meet God's conditions for reaching the world for Christ. He's a God of the second, the third, and even the fourth chances. In fact, he's a God as of as many chances as he chooses in his mercy to give you until you die. God's heart is not the problem, folks. Our heart is the problem. God's great mercy has given us a choice to make this morning. Be obedient to go wherever he sends us or be disobedient and suffer the consequences. And that's the second fact about second chances I want to warn you about. And it's simply this. Second chances often come with costly consequences. Second chances often come with costly consequences. 
God gives us second chances. But you've got to remember, chapter 3 comes after chapter 2. There, were, there was costly consequences in Jonah's life for disobeying. Yes, he got a second chance, but it cost him. Jonah's refusal to meet God's con- uh, conditions as a messenger were costly. It nearly cost him his life, both physically and even spiritually he was separated from God. Nearly cost the life of those around him, the sailors in the ship. It cost him the money he paid that he never got back. It cost him the time he wasted going the wrong way. It cost him the pain that he endured. I'm telling you, going down in the belly of a fish is not fun and fun and good times. It cost him permanent scars. You lounge in the acidic acids of a fish for three days and three nights, you're not coming out looking pretty, okay? And it definitely cost him his testimony that was damaged. But you know what grieved God the most about his disobedience? Was that it was costing the Ninevites the opportunity to hear and repent. What is the purpose of second chances? Second chances aren't for us to get to do our thing again. Second chances is to turn from our willful ways and obey God's word. Meet the first condition for fulfilling the Great Commission. Do it this morning. Be a willing messenger to go wherever God leads. Does that mean i got to sign up to be a missionary next week? No, 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 no. Maybe, maybe God's calling you in the pastorate. Maybe God's calling you to be a missionary. But he's definitely calling every believer here this morning to be a witness to the ends of the earth. You say, Chris, how would I ever get to the ends of the earth? Come to World Outreach Celebration. Come and find out. You partner with this church through your praying, through your giving, and we send and we support, and together we go as willing messengers with the gospel. Notice again, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. So what about us? God has commanded us to do at least the basics. Go as a witness locally, globally, Pray for the salvation of lost people here and around the world. Give to advance the gospel both locally through our ministries, but also through faith promise. Love the Lord and others like I love myself. Listen, as God's messengers this morning, we're given a second chance to turn or get burnt like Jonah was burnt. You see, a lot of us, are in the belly of the fish, and we just don't know it. You see, our refusal to get in line with God and out of love reach the nations, it's costing you money. See, we think, oh, if I don't give, I'll have more money. No, that's not how it works. What happens is you may be in debt, you may be struggling because you're not following God's commands to give the first portion of our income unto Him. You are maybe losing time solving problems that would disappear if we obeyed and got in line with God's will. Much of the pain that we often experience, not all of it, but much of it, 
is inner frustration and lack of fulfillment because we're not aligned with our Creator and Redeemer in doing what He saved us to do. To do. And some of us have scars that are from running away from this responsibility. And you have wounds, but our Savior can heal those wounds. He can salve those scars when you come back to Him in repentance. Listen, disobedience may even cost you your life. That's a reality that we see even in the book of James that we've been studying. You see, the first condition to reach the world is a messenger willing to repent. But there's a second condition that we see in this passage, and it's this. It's a message that calls for repentance from wrong ways. The messenger has to have a message of repentance, a message that has a biblical balance to it. So let's break that down. The thing we see in verse 2 is it must be a biblical message, a biblical message. Notice what he says. In the New American Standard, it says, Rise, go to Nineveh, to that great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation I'm going to tell you. Proclaim the proclamation. It's a king's message, and we are merely his heralds who proclaim that which he has told us. The Christian Standard Bible says, Preach the message that I tell you. Folks, our message is simple. It's God's word not man's wisdom. It's God's revelation. It's not human reasoning. It's God's power, not man's power. Romans 10, 17 is true, true, true. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Chris. No, the word of Christ, not the word of of you or you or you. It's not pressure to come up with something novel, something interesting, some bait-and-switch tactic. We are simply to herald God's Word. Proclaim the proclamation that I tell you. I love telling this story of the American uh, Bible Society record who recorded how Gaylord Kamabamarami, Kamabamarami, what a name, the society's general secretary in Zimbabwe. He tried to give a New Testament to an extremely hardened man. The man insisted that he would just use the papers to roll his own cigarettes. Kamabamarami told him, I understand that, but at least promise to read the page before you smoke it. The man agreed, and they went their separate ways. Fifteen years later, They met again at a Methodist convention in Zimbabwe, and the scripture-smoking man had found Christ and had become a full-time evangelist. He told the audience, I smoked Matthew, and I smoked Mark, and I smoked Luke, but when I got to John 3.16, I quit smoking, and my life was changed. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes on Him should not perish but have everlasting life. It takes a biblical message, and a biblical message is a balanced message. And that's what I want you to see in in Jonah 3.4. In Jonah 3.4, Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out, And he said, 
Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And so what I want you to see is a balance of bad news and good news. Eternal judgment and eternal salvation. You say, it looks like it's just judgment in that message. 40 days and you will be overthrown. But here's the beauty of it. The beauty is that word overthrow has two meanings in Scripture. It can mean to be turned, transformed by the loving compassion of God's mercy and saving message. Or it can be overturned and be burned by the blazing fierceness of God's wrath. You see, it calls for a complete overturning. It'd be like totally turning a coffee cup upside down, a coffee table completely over. The threat was this city will be upended by the fires of God unless you turn, unless you repent. How was God going to overturn this city? How severe was the message? Well, this same word to overthrow is used throughout the Bible to describe the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, which God destroyed by fire and brimstone from heaven. You can go to Genesis 19 and see this. The wicked king of Nineveh understood exactly the severity of the message because look in verse 9 of chapter 3. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. Burning, blazing, boiling anger of a white-hot holy God. God is a God of great compassion. That is all throughout Jonah, but he is a God of holy wrath as well. A biblical and balanced gospel message includes both. Listen, our, our message to the nations needs to reflect God's balance, not man's imbalance. I believe, I believe with all my heart, the greatest threat to world missions among evangelicals today is universalism among God's people. The idea that there's no hell and everyone will be saved in the end by a loving God. Or it's more deceitful brother inclusivism, which merely says everyone's going to be saved, but they're going to be saved by Christ because I'm an evangelical. They're going to be saved by Christ whether they hear the gospel or whether they believe before they die because God will give them a second chance after they die. But I'm here to tell you, it says in the Bible, God is appointed once to die, and after this, the judgment. Now is the time of second chances. There won't be a second chance after we die. And Christ doesn't save through some way other than the balanced biblical message of the gospel. Some want to preach a message of all good news and no wrath. And sadly... Others want to preach a message of all bad news and no love. But God's message is a balance of both. Amen? Because He is a balance of both. And it's also, it's a balance in our message, a balance of patience and urgency. Patience and urgency. God is patient, but time is 
limited. Forty days was a gracious time period of probation and possibility of choosing. Forty days, but there came an end. Then I will overthrow if you do not repent. You see, patient urgency is the biblical balance. Forty is the number of probation, of testing, and punishment in the Bible. The flood lasted 40 days and nights. Moses spent 40 years in Egypt, and then 40 years in the desert, and then 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus spent 40 days and nights in the wilderness, and then he was tempted. 40 years is a time and reflects 40, the number, 40 days, 40 years of testing. Here's the bottom line. A balanced message patiently proclaims the need to choose, but it's driven by an urgency, a gospel urgency that knows time is running out. Folks, we're good in our culture on being patient. So patient, we never get around to sharing the gospel. We are bad on urgency. There needs to be an urgency an urgency that drives us to the lost around us and drives us to the nations, and an urgency that says, this can't wait until I have kids, this can't wait until after I have kids, this can't wait until I get the dream job, this can't wait until I get the dream house, this can't wait until retirement, this can't wait. The time is now. The urgency is to go. And I thank God that someone came to me when I was 17 with an urgency in the workplace at my public school, and it forever changed my life. And it can change others. And that brings us to the third condition. Because when the messenger goes with the message, God does miracles. Amen? And it's the miracle that causes people to repent. The miracle that causes people to repent of wicked ways. Now notice something in verse 3. It's something that we'll see four times in the book of Jonah. It says, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. What made Nineveh a great city? Why is this repeated four times in this book? It was a great city in God's eyes, because it was a mega city with a mega population of that day. You see, it had an enormous size. It took three days to journey the breadth of that city. It was described in Genesis 10 as a metroplex, and it was the combining of three rivers in three cities. It's like in Dallas. You know, you drive from Dallas, and all of a sudden you're in Arlington. You didn't even know you went there, right? It's like the Kansas City Metroplex. It's a merging, a mass of people, which was a huge population. And we'll see in chapter 4 that there was most likely 120,000 young children that didn't know their right hand from their left hand. They didn't know right and wrong. If there was 120,000 children, then likely that's 600,000 adults. That's over a half a million people. Listen, Nineveh was the global 
empire of its day, but God wasn't impressed with its wealth. He wasn't impressed with its fame. He wasn't impressed with its military power. When God looked down on Nineveh, he saw over a half a million reasons for missions. And when God looks on this planet now, nearing 8 billion people, he sees nearly 8 billion reasons for global missions. And you know what? Last time I preached Noah was in 2010, and that's nearly over a billion more people in just that time period. The world population continues to grow. The net increase in global population amounts to about 9,000 people per hour. It's nearly 220,000 people per day. That means the equivalent of the KC metro area every 9 or 10 days. It means a new state of Missouri every month. It means an Egypt or a Germany every year. And by 2050, and it's growing, nearly 8 billion people out of 9 billion plus will live where we presently consider undeveloped nations. And the developed countries of the Western world, their population will remain the same. Even if current immigration, pa- if, if, even if current immigration patterns continue right now, the United States will never be more than 5% of the world's population. Listen, God isn't focused on the United States, and neither should we. God isn't merely concerned about American Christianity, and neither should we. Where are the messengers that are going to go to these hard places, these unreached? And I'll tell you where they are. Some of them are right now, this morning, in this room. Some of you are listening online, and God is calling, and God is leading. And we need to know whether we need to repent and follow. Here's what we know. One out of three people who could die at any moment have never heard the name of Jesus Christ. They don't know whether he's a who or a what. Nearly one out of four people are Muslim, whose best hope for heaven, according to Islam, is to die as a martyr in holy war against non-Muslims. Who will go so they may know? Listen, you know what the greatest miracle in the book of Jonah is? The greatest miracle is God changes hearts by the preaching of his word. God changes hearts by the preaching of his word. So how does he do it? Let's look at what the Ninevites did, and let's see how God performs this miracle. First of all, believe in God and his gospel message. Look at verse 5. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put sackcloth from the greatest to the least. Listen to Matthew 12, 39. We've said it several times. It bears repeating. Sign of Jonah pictures the gospel of Jesus. Here's what Jesus said. But he answered and he said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seek after a sign, and no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Three days and three nights picturing the gospel of Jesus Christ, a sinless son of God who dies a sinless sacrificial life, is buried three days, three nights, and then rises again 
to prove once and for all that he has paid the debt that we owed but couldn't pay. He lived the life that we must but we never can. He has provided salvation as a free gift this morning. But in Luke 11, listen to this, Luke 11, 29 through 30, Jonah himself becomes the sign. Listen to Luke eleven twenty nine. And while the crowds were thick, thickly gathered together, he began to say, Jesus, this is an evil generation. It seeks a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. Now here's what you got to remember. Remember what Jonah probably looks like coming up after being vomited onto the shore of Nineveh, okay? He, he, he had been to hell and back again. He's white. He's bleached by digestive juices of the great fish. He's yellowed. He's balding. He's wide-eyed. And he's praising God. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And these Ninevites are saying, Who are you and where have you been? And he says, I've been three days and three nights housed in a great fish. Nineveh means house of the great fish. And they said, why? How? How were you delivered? Why were you there? And Jonah says, because I had a hard heart that refused to meet God's great conditions for salvation. Repent right now. And you who live in the house of the fish, you too can be saved. For salvation belongs to the Lord Yahweh, the one true God of heaven and earth who always keeps his promises of judgment and salvation. Whoever believes. And so what happens? From the greatest to the least. Because there's not one message for the rich and another for the poor. There's not one gospel for America and another for Mongolia. There is the same message no matter who we are, for we're all sinners by birth and by choice. Romans 10, 8 through 12 tells us, what does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. For there is one God, the same Lord over all of us, who is rich, generous, merciful to all who call on his name. You see, the saving faith leads to life-changing repentance. And that's the second thing we must do. Believe and repent of our sins. Repent of our sins. Now, this passage is great. Everybody's repenting in this passage except Jonah. What is repentance? Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of life. Repentance is turning from a false trust for salvation, a false God, a false, false idol, uh, 
relying on ourselves, going to church, thinking that will save us, and turning to the God to whom salvation belongs. It's an internal change of heart that's wrought by the grace of God and the preaching of the gospel that leads to an external change of life. According to Jesus, in Matthew 12, 41, you know who some of the greatest examples of repentance of all time? He says it's the Ninevites. Here's what he says. For as Jonah was in three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it. Why? Why, Jesus? Because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. Listen, when we preach Jesus, there ought to be repentance like there was in Nineveh. And how did they repent? They proclaimed a fast. What's that mean? That means I'm no longer trusting on earthly sources for life. Man lives not by bread alone, but by every word from the mouth of God. They put on sackcloth. Why? Because material wealth won't get you to heaven. Just old sacks that you make cloth out of, or cloth that's made into sacks. They sat in ashes. What's that mean? They sat in the dust of the earth because they recognized, I have no significant influence. I have no way to influence God. He is God, I am not. He's the creator, I am made from dust, just like Adam. And to dust I will return. I sit in these ashes as a confession that I have nothing by which to barter my salvation. I have nothing by which I can say to God, aren't you lucky to have me on your team? I have nothing, I have nothing. They turned from pursuing their wickedness to God's holiness. And get this, they were so serious about it, they even had their animals practice repentance. They put sackcloth on the animals. Come here, puppy, come here, wear my sackcloth. And they refused to let the animals eat or drink. They fasted too. Now, what do you think happened after a few days? There was a cry of animals rising up thirsting and hungering, and it all cried up unto God. And that's the third, that's the third condition. Cry out to the one true God. They cried out because they had no leg to stand on. They cried out because they had nothing to offer. They cried out because salvation belongs to the Lord. This is the fourth time in the book of Jonah that people have cried out. The sailors cried out to their false gods and no salvation came. The sailors cried out to the one true God and salvation came free and life-changing. Jonah cries out in the belly of the fish and deliverance comes and his life begins to change. Nineveh cries out to the one true God and they are spared from the wrath of God, at least that generation who repented. Romans 10, 13 is true. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
You see, God's great miracle of conversion results in a change of life where we don't live like we used to. We don't wallow in our sin. We get convicted and we confess and we cry out knowing we have the righteousness of God. We have the Holy Spirit. I don't have to sin anymore in Christ. The messenger goes, the message is proclaimed, and God causes the miracle of repentance. But there's a fourth condition. There's a fourth condition, and it's the greatest of all. The merciful God who relents from wrath according to his word. All this summarized in verse 10. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked ways, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. A merciful God. A merciful God. Notice that they believe they didn't they not only believed Jonah and his message, but more importantly, they believed in God. O. Palmer Robertson, a Hebrew Old Testament scholar, remarks, It is not the force of the argument presented by the prophet that moved the people. It was the power of God's truth that pierced to the heart. Never rely on your own persuasive powers as the way to save sinners. Never wait until you have confidence in yourself to speak up for Christ. It is God and His truth that people believe you must remain only the instrument. Let's go. Let's speak. What does verse 10 mean when it says that God relented? Does it mean God was taken by surprise? Wow, I didn't think they were really going to repent. Now i got to switch my plans. No, God was not surprised. God was not wringing his hands in heaven, wondering how will the Ninevites choose this day? God is unchanging in how he changes. He will always act consistently with his holy character and his holy word. When we repent, he will forgive. When we call out, he will answer, for he is unchanging in how he changes people. Listen to 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Is it any wonder that Paul, the greatest missionary in the Bible, preached this same message of repentance? In Acts 17.30, here's what he says. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commends all men everywhere to repent. In Acts 26.20, he declared first in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, then in Judea, and then to the nations, to the Gentiles, that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting of repentance. Folks, we've got a merciful God, amen? We've got a powerful message that through it God works miracles in hearts, but we need to be the willing messengers.
not just to people like us, not just to people we like, but to all peoples all around the world. So I ask you this morning, where is your heart this morning? Where is your heart? Repent of rejecting God's conditions. If you don't know him, if you're, if you're drowning in your sins, if you feel like your past is too bad to ever be forgiven, turn. Turn from that way of thinking. Turn to your God this morning. Repent, and he will save you. But also, if we are rejecting what God has saved us to do, we need to repent as a church, as individuals. With your heads bowed and your hearts, let's respond. Let's respond. And let me encourage you as, as you as you reflect in your own heart. No matter how difficult the days ahead are, we cannot, we must not reject these four conditions. Eternity hangs in the balance. The glory of God awaits the nations. And I don't care how innovative or relevant, we can't forget these conditions. Will you be his messenger wherever he leads? Just commit to that. Repent and commit. Will you speak his message, whatever the cost? Will you pray for this miracle that changes hearts? Will you worship the merciful God who has a message of judgment and salvation for the nations? Lord, I pray for our church in the midst of our changing society, a postmodern world that rejects absolute truth, that rejects this exclusive message of the gospel. And I pray that we never, ever reject these four conditions. I pray that we will commit, though times change, you are unchanging, O Lord. Though cultures change, Messengers are always needed. Lord, receptivity changes at times, but the message remains the same. And Father needs change, but the new birth is the greatest need of all. Father, hearts do change. Change our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. For the glory of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.